Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. All right, so we've got a lot to cover. Um, to wrap up Hebrews, because today is the last lesson we're going to be doing on the book of Hebrews. Um, the last time I taught in here, I appreciate James getting us to the point that I could discuss the point of the whole matter. And then now I get to wrap uh, the whole book up. So I kind of feel like I'm cheating because uh, he does all the work. And then I get to kind of summarize things and, and, and some of the applicable pieces. So we're going to, I'm not going to pretend that we're going to actually make it, but we're supposed to look at Hebrews 11, 12, and 13. Now it takes James a little over an entire class to cover one book. So clearly we're going to skip some stuff and move pretty fast. Um, and what's interesting is when you get to the end of Hebrews, there's actually a bit of a shift in the discussion and the topics, and all of a sudden, in my opinion, Hebrews gets, gets very much um, almost like the book of James. It gets very practical. It gets very applicable. It shifts a little bit about trying to explain some rather complicated and lofty things with the law, the tabernacle, the, the real tabernacle that's in heaven, and all of a sudden we get to some very practical matters right here to conclude the book of Hebrews. So let's start with chapter 11. And I didn't put any slides together. Sorry, Rafe, he was running PowerPoint. Uh, I didn't put any slides together because, quite frankly, you just need your Bible. And we're going to go through the text. Um, It's pretty straightforward, so I figured you'd rather have it right there in front of you in print you're used to rather than me trying to to put it on the slides and, and make the guys keep up. So starting chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. That last phrase, the second half of verse 3, we could spend an entire probably quarter, but at least a whole class on just that piece. The more I looked at it, I had to pull myself back out of that rabbit hole because we have a lot of material to cover. There's a lot there. There's the literal sense. There's a figurative sense. There are just so many different ways that that can be true. You can think of it, things that were made, especially talking right after the worlds were framed by the Word of God. You can talk about the world itself. You can also put that in the context of everything we've been discussing up to this point in Hebrews. And put that in the context of a tabernacle and a temple and a heavenly tabernacle. So I I wish we had time to delve into it, but like I said, we've got to cover 11, 12, and 13. And so I just want to point out that sometimes it's the phrases that we gloss over, at least for me, um, when I'm studying, and then you go back and look at them, you realize, wow, there's an awful lot there. And so believe it or not, now that we've... uh, at least at an intro to how complicated verse 3 can be once you look at its full meaning. Let's drop all the way down to verse 30. I'm going to skip a lot in chapter 11 because I feel like chapter 11 is one of those chapters that we hear lessons on. I mean, the roll call of faith is one of those things that we hear a lot about. But I do want to cover the end of it 
Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith. So I want to pause here for a second. Because what we're about to read is a fairly incredible list of things and events and, and obstacles that were put before people that they were able to overcome through faith. And if you go look at that word there, through, it's the ground or reason by which something is or is not done. It's used in different ways to reflect by reason of, on account of, because of, for this reason, therefore, on this account. But we're talking about things who through, because of, by the reason of, faith. Now, we all know Romans 10.17, right? I can't mention faith and not mention Romans 10.17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this passage is in the middle of a larger discussion on, on preaching and the fact that you must hear, therefore preachers must be sent, because you can't believe what you haven't heard. But I think we need to stop and reflect here in chapter 11 in this roll call of faith that the whole reason all these people are pointed out is because we, when we get to the end, we find out that if we have heard, and having heard, have believed then we should have faith. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mocking and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And we claim we have faith and whine about going to work on Monday morning. I mean, this is an impressive list. It's kind of amazing what we should be able to achieve if we just had faith. And I want to point out, it's easy when looking at a passage like this, especially after the roll call of faith, because we're calling out some seriously impressive people uh, prior to chapter 30, right? When we start talking about faith. I mean, we're talking about people who are not just had faith, 
who were renowned for their faith. But I think it's important when we look in 32 here. I mean, look at these people that were called out that he didn't have time to mention because time would fail, right? But in that list, we find people that even as children were taught about, yeah, they had faith, but they also had lots of flaws. Samson, David, I mean, those are the probably two that jump out the quickest. These were real people who by having faith were able to do amazing things. So this is my point. When you get to the end of Hebrews, it gets real practical and less lofty. We've got some other things I want to say about faith, but I'm pretty sure we're going to run out of time. So I'm going to come back to it at the end of class if we have time. I just think it's important that we remember 11 when we look at it. All of these examples are given so that we can realize that if we just had faith, not only the things that we can accomplish, right? In 33, 34, 35, talking about, you know, stopping the mouths of lions, subduing kingdoms, but probably more importantly, when you get down into, you know, the middle of 35 through 38, these are things that most of us want nothing to do with. Yet by faith, we're able to overcome them. I heard a description one time, I think it's probably true, people have a bad habit of uh, glorifying the past. Oh, the good old days. Yeah, right. (laughs) The good old days when I had to go on the front lawn and start the little gas engine that was on the washing machine, right? Or the good old days when I didn't even have that and I literally had to get a tub of water and a washboard. Or if I didn't even have that, I had to go down to a creek and spend all my time washing, oh, by the way, the, if I'm lucky, couple sets of clothes that I actually owned. Since uh, the, the thing I heard described one time, I can't remember who described this. It might have been Mike Rowe, the guy that hosts Dirty Jobs. I think he was actually talking about it. Basically since the 1950s, since the end of World War II, when there was this huge boom of prosperity, especially in the United States. You ever looked at advertising? It's all about how it's going to make your life easier. Even in the 50s, you could see it. All the wonderful new appliances that would be in your kitchen. Why? Because they would make the work of the housewife or whoever's doing the work, it would make it so much easier, right? But think about what that happens over 50 years. We expect everything to be easy. We expect everything to be simple. We, we get frustrated by simple little things these days that, quite frankly, it's kind of amazing that we have them to worry about. We find here in 11 that the beauty of faith is giving you the ability to, well, endure torture. That they chose not accepting deliverance. Faith is a mighty powerful thing, and it's a word we throw around rather flippantly most of the time. And it's something that I might point out we're partially responsible for if not entirely. I'm still working on that one myself. Because faith, as we said, comes by hearing, and hearing of the Word of God. So if we find ourselves lacking faith, it's probably because we're lacking in the Word of God, and in study, and coming to know it. All right, 39. And all these, having obtained a good testimony, through faith, did not receive the promise. So 
even though all these that were mentioned, these people renowned for their faith and everything that they were able to achieve, we get to 39, all these, having obtained a good testimony, clearly, because they're getting this testimony is being given of them here, testimony due to their faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Let's go straight into 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has not sat down, and has, excuse me, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So because of this faith, because of this cloud of witnesses, we now find ourselves being called to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ennares us, and we're called to run a race. And I find it interesting. I'm, this is the New King James that I'm using. It's interesting the type, how, how we're called to run that race. We're not called to be the first person to win the race. We're called to run the race with endurance. With endurance. The secret to endurance, what's the secret to endurance, Mark? You cycle, you do long bike rides, good night, you'd ride circles around me for days. What's the secret to endurance? And just don't stop. When it gets hard, you keep going. There's a podcast that kind of since the pandemic I've, I've been listening to, and it's a guy who's a retired Navy SEAL. And, of course, a lot of this stuff always comes up. They, they have this this um, training buds, right, that they go do. This this big deal for, for Navy SEALs. And they actually refer to week three of this training, probably too casually, they refer to it as hell week. Clearly this is being referred to by people who have no idea what hell is actually like. If they think a week of not sleeping and having to simply do hard physical things is in any way comparable to hell. But that's what they call it. And it's interesting because they've yet, I mean, this has been around since just before the Vietnam War, and they've yet been able to figure out who's going to make it and who's not. You can take people that are Division I athletes that by all definitions are just the most impressive human specimens we can come up with, and they quit. Huge number of them quit before they even get to week three, Glenn. (laughs) They don't even make it that far. Then you have people that show up that are barely able to pass the physical fitness test to even get a chance to be there, and they sail through the whole thing. Well, I take that back. Nobody sails through it, but they make it through. And it basically comes down to this. Not are they the strongest, not are they the fastest, not are they the smartest, although you have to be smarter than you would think. Not only are they the best leader, but it kind of comes down to this. They have endurance. Are they willing to quit? Because the whole reason they make them do all that horrible stuff is mostly because they want them to quit. They want them to quit there, not when it counts later. And the secret for us is to make sure we run our race with endurance. We don't have to be the fastest. We don't have to be the best. We don't have to be the person who has 
the most of the Bible memorized. We don't have to be the person that gives the best speech, that teaches the best class, that runs their work as a deacon better than anybody else. We should be striving towards all those things. That's part of the race, is getting towards the goal. But the real secret, I think, is wrapped up in that one little word, endurance. Okay, I say little. It's not that little. There's a lot in that. And not quit. We have to run the race that is set before us. Verse 3. For considering him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Before we get there, there's another one of these. We're talking about faith. And even to those in the first century, when this was written, they're still being reminded that you have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Which means keep enduring, like up in verse 1. Continuing in 5. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son who he receives. You know, I was preparing to read this and I was instantly reminded earlier last week, our neighbors across the street about uh, a year and a few months ago now, um, gentleman and his wife who live across the street from us, um, gentleman's name was Tom how much we had in common. I think we spoke three times in the roughly 15 years we lived across from each other. He was, they, they kind of kept to themselves. Um, but Tom passed away. He had been fighting, a, I forget what it is, a very non-aggressive form of leukemia for, the joke was 20 or 30 years, his wife said, because he kept outliving his doctors. But Tom finally passed away, and I was talking to his wife, and it was interesting because, mm, one, it's kind of amazing the two of them were married. He's a retired helicopter pilot. Um, they're very different personalities. But, we were talking about some different stuff, and in Athens, I don't know how many of y'all know this, there's been recently kind of this explosion and a bit of an issue with a homeless, homelessness problem in Athens. And it's not so much that it's a homelessness problem, it's more of a vagrancy problem um, in Athens. We're right on the interstate, we're right on a main railroad line, we're, we got a Bucky's, I don't know if you heard, it's been all over the news. Um, and we were talking about this, and it was interesting because I could kind of tell which side of the fence she was on. She was a little mad at the city council that they weren't willing to just, you know, throw more money at helping solve this problem and get these people stuff. And so I kind of subtly launched into my discussion on love. Because I think one of our biggest problems is people have the definition of love entirely wrong. And it's described right here. Love is not giving somebody everything they say they want. Love is caring enough about somebody that I'm willing to chastise them when they need it. Now, there's a much bigger context when you're talking about something like vagrancy or homelessness that goes around all that. But it's not as simple as throwing money and food at a problem. Because and we're going to see more of it starting in chapter 7 here. When you think about love, the best example I've ever been able to come up with is have you ever been at Walmart? Now, I'll admit, I'm a kept man. I very rarely have to go to Walmart. I do my best to try to avoid having to go to Walmart, but every now and then I find myself at a Walmart. And have you ever been in, 
in a grocery store or a big department store and seen a kid that's just absolutely acting up. I mean, the poor mother is just at their wit's end and this kid is just unruly. Did you go discipline the kid? I'm guessing no. Glenn probably did it, but I'm guessing no. Why? If it was your kid, you better believe there would have been something happened. One of my boys, or if it had been me, my parents, why? I love my kids. My parents love me. I'm not saying those parents don't love them, but it's different. That willingness to go chastise them, is the word that's used here, is born out of love. Not hatred. But the world doesn't understand that anymore, do we? We think that if I contradict someone, I mean, this is what cancel culture is all about. If I don't agree with somebody or I say, no, I think that's wrong or I think you need to look at that a little more, that may not be quite the best way to go down this road. If you don't instantly agree with them, you're unloving, you're hateful. No, I would argue it's the most loving thing I can do is say, I think you're going down a road that's going to hurt you. You need to stop. And we see in 7 that's explained even better. If you endure chastising, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. You don't chastise the kids that aren't yours. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect, shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I don't know what it takes, but Glenn, I really want to figure out how we just like get every TV station and radio station to just basically take, I don't know, the middle of five through the end of 11 and just play it on repeat for about a month. (laughs) Because I think it's something we've forgotten. In fact, we haven't just forgotten it. It's become awkward and uncomfortable if you even bring it up that we've forgotten it to a lot of people. Yeah, it would be considered the opposite of this. It would be considered unloving um, by a lot of people, right? It's the same thing like, you know, these days you get in trouble if you're in the store and all of a sudden you dust the britches because somebody's acting up. People look at you weird or, oh, they're going to report me to whatever the group is that's supposedly going to come take your kids away because you're abusing them. Verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hand, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Again, hold on. Let's put this all in context. This chastising is in context of we've shifted to faith and the faith that we should have. And now we've talked about love and the fact that sometimes that means you need to be corrected. And if you need to be corrected, especially from God, it's because there's sin. Twelve. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet 
so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Okay, hold on. Let's read this again. because there's, there's some good stuff here, but it's a little complicated the way it's written. You have to get the, 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 uh, the figurative language that's being used here. There's kind of a metaphor going on. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Okay, so there's some parts of the body that are weak, and we need to strengthen them. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. How do I strengthen these parts that are weak? I make straight paths. So what is this talking about? If I have areas in my life or sins which are a hindrance to me, I make straight paths so as to avoid them and not cause stumbling blocks. So that by avoiding, I can be strengthened. And be healed. Make straight paths for your feet. Put that in terms that we might use today. Hey, if I know I have a problem with being tempted by social drinking, then I probably shouldn't go to the Christmas party where I know everybody's going to be drinking. Make a path. It's easier to make the decision to say, I'm going to go over here instead and I'm going to make this real easy. And I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to make it even easier to avoid that. I'm going to make sure I fill up all my free time doing stuff with other people where I know that's not going to be a problem. Oh, sorry, I can't make it. I already have obligations to go to this other Christmas party where that isn't even going to be a temptation. Because it doesn't say find straight paths. It doesn't say look out for straight paths. It says make straight paths. Purchase, uh, pursue, purchase. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. I think it's interesting that here we see this pursuing peace with all people directly linked with avoiding the root of bitterness. Because that's not something that happens instantly. I think it's interesting that it's described here as a root that takes hold. If you're not pursuing peace, if you're willing to have a quarrel going with people all the time, if you're willing to constantly chew at them and bicker, it grows up like a root. Slowly. You don't instantly become a bitter person, Glenn. At least not that I've ever seen. Like any other, well, let's say it this way, like any other sin... Some may be more predisposed to it than others, but you have to cultivate it and allow it to grow. I want to skip a little bit here, or I don't think we're going to make it all the way through. And if we do, we're going to go back and talk about faith a little more. So let's drop down to verse 18, because we just see some examples here. In 18, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the world should not that the word should not be spoken to them anymore okay so 
referencing here that we have not come to Mount Sinai. Again, this makes perfect sense with the message and the theme we've seen throughout Hebrews. Drop down to 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So again here, another reference to the fact that we have this faith, and now we have, again, this example of something that's even better. We haven't been called to the foot of Mount Sinai, where they trembled and were scared, and you couldn't set foot on it without being put to death, even the animals, where you heard the rumblings, where even Moses was afraid, and they saw the fierceness. Instead, we've come to Mount Zion. And again, we're making that transition from not just tabernacle to temple, but heavenly tabernacle. Twenty-five. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we, mean, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now look at this. Very next verse. Let's remember, the divisions were put in later, but let's, let's, let's go straight from the end of 12 into 13. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Thirteen starts almost, it, it almost, when you get to thirteen, it almost becomes Proverbs. We have this section at the beginning of thirteen. But I find it interesting that just opposed with the imagery again of Mount Sinai versus a heavenly fire. We have our God who is a consuming fire. And then we're instantly called to continue in brotherly love. Which, tying it also back, because that consuming fire is chastisement because he loves us. Continuing in 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let us let our conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear 
what can man do to me? I find it interesting that we talk about faith. We talk about love and chastisement. We talk about endurance. And then very specifically, key issues that seem to be themes that crop up in, peace, in people's lives are instantly brought to our attention again. Continually brotherly love, entertain strangers, be hospitable. Remember those who are in affliction. Remember those who are prisoners, as if you are chained with them. Those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Kind of interesting, when you look at the end of that, Glenn, it's almost as if being in the body is described as being in prison. With the way those are linked. And because we're specifically told, why should we remember them? Because we ourselves are in the body also. Then again, marriage and your conduct. Verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faiths follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. You know, the, the religious world, I think, has forgotten this one too, by Christendom at large. Um, Especially that last phrase, considering the outcome of their conduct. I mean, just think of all the requirements we're given for qualities a man must possess to be an elder. Or even a deacon. And here we have, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. So we're talking pretty specifically about religious leaders here, not simply rulers at large or perhaps within the government. But we're talking about those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. It's unfortunately become sad that, in, in, at least in America, most of the time when I see someone running down Christianity or the Bible or Christ... I always see it in a context where I would likely, I'm, I'm more likely to be in agreement with the condemnation with the way Christianity is being represented by whoever the supposed Christian is than, than to say the other person's attacking him wrong. And isn't that kind of sad? Because we see Christianity twisted in so many weird ways, often false ways, that aren't even what the word actually says. And people don't even notice because they don't study and they don't know. And look at the conduct of some of these supposed Christian leaders that we see out there that are leading, you know, supposed communities in, in the way they go. Um, I heard something interesting the other day. I didn't actually realize this, but you think uh, apparently one of... Um, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, so don't quote me on this. This is just the highlights I remember from the way it was described. Apparently, one of Al Sharpton's 
claims to fame that made him a household name was supporting some folks with some false accusations that he knew were false, but he continued anyway. In fact, he knew they were so false that when a defamation suit was brought against him, he lost big time. Yet he still stands up and uses the name Reverend. Drives me crazy every time I see him on some news program and he's up there as the Reverend Al Sharpton. But it's not just him. There's others. In fact, it came up at Thanksgiving dinner the other day with my dad. He made a comment about, uh, who was that guy? Uh, Kenneth Copeland. Said something about where he's standing. Said, yeah, I, said, I don't, that guy, I don't know what his deal is. He goes, if you just, he had seen a picture of him in an interview with him. If you just seen his look, his face, just the way he sits there and glares. And I said, yeah, if I was a betting man, somebody's hopping him up on speed before he goes on camera. Consider the outcome of their conduct. A man who will rant and rail with hate, claiming to be teaching something from the Bible. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with the various and strange doctrines. Hey, Glenn, let's tack this on the end of the commercial that's going to go over and over. (laughs) Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. This is an interesting discussion, Glenn, if you're ever looking for a sermon topic, because this is one I don't guess I had really thought about until I was preparing this lesson, is the fact that the body of those animals was carried outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Golgotha was outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased." So again, the theme throughout Hebrews that we see is that we now have a new tabernacle, a better tabernacle. The law was not simply abandoned, it was fulfilled. And we now have a better one. Well, because we have a new high priest, we now need a new law. Seventeen, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. So he he ends with a, a prayer request and then moves into kind of his final uh, farewell. 
Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of, of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. So again, Kerry did a great job talking about why he believes Paul was likely not the author, but it's also clear to see why people would easily see that. It was likely someone traveling with Paul, or someone clearly that knew him, given all those. We have a few minutes. Now that we've looked at the end of this, I'd like to go back to, to faith um, and share something that, that kind of um, pressed isn't the right word. I found it very interesting given the way we often talk about and use faith. I saw a clip of an interview. And again, this is where I get myself in trouble because I didn't see the whole interview. I may have this out of context. So bear with me. But um, there's a gentleman from Canada who's a psychologist and he's gained a lot of notoriety lately. He made some stands over some laws in Canada that he thought were horrible and counter to free speech and and he didn't like them. Um, and, And he gained a lot of popularity because he's actually very well thought. He's from that academic crowd that should be acceptable and the matters he was speaking on were counter to what's acceptable to come from those clouds. In fact, his own university had a bunch of people write letters and basically get them fired. Um, he more or less resigned. I can't remember exactly how that went down. But what I find interesting is he's a psychologist. And that's how he's trained. And he's written a number of books. His first book was very much a psychology book. I mean, it was a psychology textbook. But as he's been talking on different subjects, in fact, they said, oh, you're just, in fact, one time he got accused, oh, you're just one of those conservative psychologists. He goes, I'm the sum total of conservative psychologists. There are no other conservative psychologists. But he did a whole series on the Bible. Now, he doesn't believe in the Bible the way we do, I don't think. He at least doesn't feel like he can say it publicly. I don't think. I'm not him. But he's done incredibly popular series of seminars where he sat and talked about it. He talks about Cain and Abel and what that represents. He's got the symbology down. He understands what it represents. What I don't think he's accepted yet is the fact that that's a historical document. But I saw him with an interview. And since we were talking about faith, and that's where a lot of the stuff here at the end is, I thought I'd leave you with it. He's known for being a very deep thinker. Right? You can tell he's one of the few people that when he's in an interview will pause before he answers. He's not just there to give you his quick pre-digested sound bite. He will listen to a question and answer. And I saw an interviewer ask him, do you believe in the God of the Bible? And he paused. And you could tell there was a lot going on. And he was nearly in tears. And his answer was basically, if you understand what you just asked, 
That's an incredible statement to make. This is a guy who studied the Bible more thoroughly and more deeply than most people who've spent their life as Christians. I mean, to the point where he can stand up and give lectures and thousands of people will pay tons of money to show up. And quite frankly, the bits and pieces I've heard of it, he seems to have it right, other than being willing to accept that it's the word of God. As far as describing the story and the implications, he's probably at least 90% of the way there as far as getting it accurate and describing it. But to see someone who doesn't profess to necessarily be a Christian realize the magnitude of what it means to have faith was impressive. And for me, it was something that made me stop and go, wow, that's a word that we use a lot. And it does come by hearing, but if we actually understood the power behind it and in in whom that faith lies and where it comes from, would we be living our lives differently? Should we be living our lives differently? And ultimately, the book of Hebrews is all about faith. Even in the Old Testament, they had faith. There was a tabernacle, there were patriarchs, there was a tabernacle. Tabernacle, there was a temple. From the temple, the heavenly temple, in the sacrifice of Jesus. And the faith in all of those things as they went through. There you go. Just like annoying meetings at work where they say, I'll give you back your three minutes. There you go. We're done a little bit early. Next week, uh, I'm actually going to be filling in for James again. We're going to be kicking off a study on Nehemiah. And I'm going to kind of do the same thing there. I know James is going to do a better job on the history of Nehemiah and a lot of the fun details. So I want to talk about some of the practical applications. Keith did a study not that long ago with the college class on the leadership of Nehemiah, which to me is just incredible. I'd never looked at Nehemiah from that point of view. And so I'm going to attempt to do an introduction knowing James is going to do the real introduction the next week. And we're going to talk a little bit about the leadership and some of the lessons of Nehemiah, hopefully setting up so as we look at all those details, we can see how even more incredible his leadership was throughout the events recorded in the book with his name. So thank you for your attention. And thank you, Tim, for that perfectly timed bell. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.